There is no such thing as a new idea. It is impossible. We simply take a lot of old ideas and put them in a sort of mental kaleidoscope. We give them a turn and they make new and curious combinations. We keep on turning and making new combinations indefinitely, but they are the same old pieces of colored glass that have been in use through all the ages. Mark Twain. Welcome to Curious Combinations and Everything's Unoriginal Podcast. I'm AF Tanneth, and today, on my first episode of the podcast, I'm going to be covering Dark, Season 1, Episodes 1 and 2. We open on an Einstein quote, The difference between the past, the present, and the future is merely an illusion, albeit a very persistent one. And between it and our opening lines, we trust that time is linear, that it proceeds eternally, uniformly, into infinity. But the distinction between past, present, and future is nothing but an illusion. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow are not consecutive. They are connected in a never-ending circle. Everything is connected. We clearly know, right from the jump, what our show is going to be about. We, my friends, are doing timey-wimey nonsense. So grab your TARDIS, note the mind-bending Netflix tag, and strap in for this ride. Because our first scene is a doozy. We watch a man hang himself, and we have no idea why. Now, sometime later, after his son has both gone to and been released from a mental hospital, we see said son, Jonas, taking pills. What kind of pills? Maybe antidepressants? Maybe something else? We don't know yet. Now, I want to say up front that I am so glad I watched this twice. Once, to react to it, which is available over on my Patreon to anyone who's interested in parting with $5 per month, and then again to take notes for this script for the podcast. I desperately needed to do this. My note-taking revealed exactly how much I had missed the first go-around. There is so much that gets thrown at you so quickly in these first 50 minutes of the show, and between all of it and how similar many of the actors are to one another, I was missing tons of details and not at all managing to keep track of who was who among the male characters. Though the actresses are a bit more visibly distinguishable, thankfully. In any case, after this opening, we get into the credits. They're very interesting credits. Like I said, Netflix calls this show, quote, mind-bending, and the credits really play into that. There's a very interesting mirror-fractal kaleidoscope thing happening here, and I'm looking forward to seeing how it plays into the narrative. Because one thing I can say for sure about this show, even having only seen these first two episodes, is that this show is clearly very purposefully done. Details are very meaningful here, full of symbolism and foreshadowing, and I'm going to talk a bit about some of the ones that I noticed as I go through these first two episodes' recaps but I'm sure there's even more that I've missed. Just as a side note, the song playing over the credits, at least in the US, it could be different in Germany or other countries, I'm not sure. It's Goodbye by a band called Apparat, or perhaps A Parrot, and I suspect it was chosen for its lyrics, which are as follows. Please put me to bed and turn down the light. Fold down your hands and give me a sign. Put down your lies, lay down next to me. Don't listen when I scream. Bury your doubts and fall asleep. Find out I was just a bad dream. Let the bedsheet soak up my tears and watch the only way out disappear. Don't tell me why. Kiss me goodbye. For neither ever nor never goodbye. Neither ever nor never goodbye. Neither ever nor never goodbye. Goodbye. From there, an unexpected sex scene, carefully arranged to hide everyone's bits from a prudish American audience, distracts from what I think is a pretty promising line. Why, in a town right beside a power plant, is the power frequently going out at this woman's house? Further focus on our lovers proves that they are having an adulterous affair, and that she feels more strongly for him than he does for her. Ew to the infidelity, and ugh to another use of the familiar cliché, the cheating husband who is with his mistress while his child is kidnapped, molested, or killed, looking at you, Broadchurch. 
After that, we get some establishing shots of our cast's normal world, including the first hints of something truly being wrong, a missing poster for a teen boy, Eric, and a shot of a mysterious cave system with an even more mysterious noise emanating from somewhere deep within it. Among these establishing shots is a conversation that concerns me a bit. I still don't think I understand the relationship between the main teenager, Jonas, and the man he meets in the woods. Is it something innocent, or is this something I should be concerned about? Given what we see of this man later, I'm worried it might be the latter. Elsewhere, our suicide victim, Michael, his mother has his note, but the instructions on it tell her to read it at a very particular date and time. How this date was chosen is a mystery to me so far, as is the reasoning behind the wait, as is what's actually in the note, not to mention how the hell the mother actually managed to resist opening it before the exact minute in the instructions. I wouldn't have been able to stop myself, and I have no idea yet what the consequences of my impatience would have been. Then, we meet our soon-to-be victim, Mikkel, an annoying little brother character a la Georgie from It. He's the son of the cheating man, and he performs a magic trick that's deeply foreshadowing of what's going to happen to him over the course of these two episodes. At the police station, we have an altercation between the parents of the missing teen and the cops. The mother literally spits in the female officer's face. These parents are clearly intended to be poor, and given that they turn out to be drug runners, I'm not thrilled by their characterization here. But then we're introduced to something that's probably nothing, but I keep getting distracted by. What the hell is up with the dude in the eye bandage? But then we cut to our real mystery. Who is the mysterious figure emerging from that mysterious cave? We do some teen flirting after that, between the cop's daughter and the cheater's son, and I cannot pretend to be interested in that at this point in the story. And then we cut to a school assembly wherein we get even more teen romance drama. There's like a love triangle involving the main teen, apparently. But we also get some discussion of the missing teen, which is more interesting. And we find out that the cheater's cuckweened wife is the school principal. I think the dad works for the police, but based on what we see later, he's not terribly good at his job. So when the cheater talks to the female officer, Charlotte, we find out that there's only one other thing of note that has happened in this town. His brother went missing back in their childhood. Since his son will go missing later in this episode, I assume that means something, right? Cut to the hotel, where the owner, Regina, is having some kind of a breakdown, presumably to do with her financial situation. She blows up at her creditors on the phone, and without context, it's hard to tell who's in the wrong here, short of that bankers are, you know, almost always in the wrong. But the parent-teacher meeting later proves that she's not exactly a great person either way. Cut to class with our main teen, Jonas, whose friends point out to him that the missing teen was hiding drugs in the caves, which surely has something to do with why and how he went missing. And then we're back with the cheating husband, who is visiting his mother. She has some ominous things to say about, quote, things out there that they can't comprehend, and she shows her son a candy wrapper that she found in the woods, presumably recently, and associates with her missing child, who disappeared 33 years ago. Given that the new missing boy goes to the past, maybe the previous missing boy, Mads, maybe he went to the future. But then it's time for the most disturbing scene, I think. It's a very real horror. Right away, you can tell that the set is not a normal bedroom. It's actually a prison for the missing boy, and that's confirmed a moment later with a shot of the bunker-like door and a torture device reminiscent of an electric chair. Given what we learn later about the injuries of the corpse that the police find, the choice of the You Spin Me Right Round song seems like very clever, intentional foreshadowing. There's this distinct undercurrent of potential conspiracy and or general threat from the nuclear power plant, 
which I don't love. We'll see where that goes, though. And then, after a few affair-related scenes, we get a glimpse at our other woman and her job. She's giving a massage to a dude that turns out to be some kind of a head dude over at the power plant. I don't know exactly what position he has, but he's clearly in charge. And he mentions that he showed up in town the same year that the first boy disappeared. Back to the suicide victim, Michael's mom. She's still contemplating his suicide note, and she's keeping it in a box with a tree symbol on it, reminiscent of that new-agey tree of life symbol. It could be an Yggdrasil reference, I suppose? But after a brief meeting between the cheater's wife and his lover, and I feel so bad for his wife here, we're back with the teens. Jonas meets up with his friend's girl, who I think is the missing boy's sister, and he reveals that something romantic or sexual happened between them the previous summer. And then she mentions having deja vu, which I feel might be simply meant to introduce the concept to the audience. Jonas calls it a glitch in the matrix, and she interprets it as something to do with, quote, the other side, which alludes to religion but could be understood as, like, dimensional shenanigans. And then the rest of the teens show up, and we all wander off into the woods. As evidenced by the injured old man Helgi, or Helga, Helgi, Helga, something like that, he goes marching through the streets and muttering to himself on the way to the PTA meeting, and it's a clear sign that something bad is about to happen to them. At the PTA meeting, we discover just how shitty the hotel woman actually is. She is determined to discount the possibility that something bad has actually happened to Eric, presumably because she needs the tourism money that his potential murder is stopping coming in. But yikes on bikes, this is a shitty attitude. The most important thing is that we stick together, the principal says when we cut back from another scene of the teens, and oh boy is that a good hint of what is about to happen. But Helgi barges in on the principal's looming spat with the hotel lady, and he's ranting about how something's about to happen again. Since later he immediately knows it when Mikkel disappears, he really does seem to know what he's talking about. How? Who knows. My tinfoil for the moment is that he's actually Mads, Mikkel's missing uncle. I don't know how a nuclear power plant and time travel could possibly be connected, but that is clearly the association we're supposed to be getting at this point in the story. Maybe it's a misdirect, but right now it definitely doesn't feel like it. So then, our illicit lovers meet up while Michael's mother counts down the seconds to when she can open up her son's suicide note. I was hoping that we as the audience would get to see what's in it, but we have no such luck here. And then we're back to the teens, and there's a bit of a fight with the outsider girl over the drugs that gets interrupted by something weird happening in the caves. There's this bizarre noise that's a bit undercut by how similar it is to the background noise throughout the entire episode. In any case, though, it and the snapping twigs all around them and their flickering flashlights scare the children, and they all take off running. Mikkel is abandoned by his older siblings, and it's Jonas who drags him off into the trees. Except Jonas trips, and he loses sight of Mikkel. Instead, he sees a man who may or may not be his father, I can't quite tell, covered in something black. When he catches up with the other kids, Mikkel is gone, and of course they blame Jonas. Say it with me, boys and girls. Fuck these kids. So they go off to search for Mikkel, but apparently they decide off-screen that he must genuinely be gone, because the next thing we see, all of the teen's parents are getting the call about him being missing, and their teens being involved. Mikkel's dad, the cheater who may or may not be a police officer, he runs off into the woods to wander around in a panic, and then he heads into the caves and the show cuts to black. It is ominous, and it leaves room for anything to have happened to him within that cut, up to and including death, replacement by a body snatcher, or any number of other things. So, Charlotte gets a call from her husband the next day, and he's absolutely breaking the hell down, trying not to tell her something. She essentially hangs up on him, and between this scene and his first scene with Jonas, 
I am extraordinarily concerned about what is going on with this dude. He keeps repeating the serenity prayer or whatever it's called, and I have no idea what to make of that. All I can think of is alcoholism, but I have no idea if AA has made it to Germany or if I'm supposed to be getting some other kind of association here. In any case, the police have now stumbled across a body. It's a little boy, and for some reason, literally no one stops the presumed father of the dead child from running up and compromising the crime scene. But the boy is not Mikkel, which I feel like the other officers should have tried to confirm or deny before his dad got his prints all over the corpse, especially since the parents are always the number one suspects when something happens to a child. The kid, by the way, is found with a Walkman, which is a timey-wimey detail a bit undercut by the immediate jump to the kidnapped boy watching old music videos quite against his will. He's gagged and being strapped into the electric chair-looking device, and a piece of it swings shut over his eyes, and it's all looking very bad for him indeed. At this point, I fully expected to never see this child alive again, and I was mostly correct. Episode 2 opens with a long-distance shot of the power plant and tells us that it's been nine hours since Mikkel disappeared, which is important. The first 48 hours really matter when it comes to missing people, especially missing children. But as the police search, a stranger in a black hood, who may or may not have been the person imprisoning and torturing Eric, he looks on and examines a dead bird. What do dead birds have to do with anything? I have no idea yet. In any case, we're back to Jonas's dreams now. He's dreaming about the man he saw from the forest, all covered in black stuff, and he's dreaming about seeing that same black shit leaking from his own ears. Given that we find out later the boy's corpse had its ears horribly damaged, and the prescient old man's got a mangled ear of his own, it's clear that there's something going on here with ears and maybe senses in general. My pet theory is that this is a very no-sleep kind of horror. There's a backdrop of nuclear threat and conspiracy and weird sci-fi nonsense, and maybe some villain or other is trying to achieve some kind of transcendence by destroying people's senses. The corpse, meanwhile, is only 16 hours dead. His eyes have been destroyed with burns, and his ears were destroyed by something like an extreme sound or a centrifuge. You spin me right round, baby. Back to the cave. Mikkel's dad finds a door way in the back of it, and it's perfectly possible that this is the door to the bunker where Eric is being kept. Or, alternately, it's an entirely separate, suspicious door. I don't know yet. Any which way about it, though, I don't think it's right for the dad to be participating in the investigation like this. Again, realistically, he and his wife should be the prime suspects. Then, in the woods, we get a confrontation between the outsider girl and Mikkel's brother that goes mostly nowhere. It's mostly just here to reiterate that there is subtext between them, to which I say you, and no thank you, but okay, I guess. And then we have Charlotte's husband crying in his car, and I am concerned. Honestly, I'm kind of expecting another suicide at this point. After all, we still don't know what was in Michael's suicide note, and this could be connected. And then we get our first look at Mikkel's dad's dad. He's trying to get something that I assumed was blood off of a sweater, but in retrospect, I assume it's actually the red dirt or clay that was inexplicably found on the boy's body. Whatever it is, though, it sure goes a long way toward making the man look suspicious as fuck. He doesn't have an alibi, either, and his own wife seems to get that something is wrong here. Given that first her son disappeared and now her grandson as well, she sure better be suspicious of literally everyone. 
From there, we get Mikkel's sister and Mikkel's mother having a heart-to-heart about Mikkel and Mikkel's missing uncle. Mikkel's sister is really pressed about the idea of never knowing what happened to him, and honestly, I get it. Closure is way more important than the body in a lot of cases. Her boyfriend, Hotel Lady's son, is busy trying to call her while this is going on. And can I just say how creepy he looks in this scene? This boy has serial killer vibes, and I don't know if that's a misdirect or not. So then, Charlotte talks to her officers at the police station, including eye injury guy, who might be connected to ear injury guy, I don't know, and they mention the mysterious red dirt and the Walkman, which has a song on it that alludes to time travel. Then, Mikkel's dad bursts in, yelling about the door he found. Apparently, it leads to the power plant, but they can't just investigate it without a warrant, which they're going to have a hell of a hard time getting. And then we have Eric's dad talking to Power Plant Boy. They're doing something vague and shady, and there's an uncomfortable power and class imbalance between them that really makes my skin crawl, but obviously in a way that's intended. I just wonder how I'm going to feel about this when I understand more of the context here. Then, at the hotel, Black Hood Guy rolls up on Hotel Lady and books a room. I don't know what to make of him yet, either than to suspect that he's being set up as suspect number one in regards to the whole who's the villain question, and I think, instead, that this guy is a big red herring. My tinfoil hat theory at the moment is that Mikkel never gets back to his proper place in time, and that this mysterious guy is Mikkel all grown up and on some kind of a mission. But in the woods, we have a search party. Mikkel's grandfather is hearing sympathies from a woman that I don't think we've seen before, but he doesn't come across as especially grateful to hear them. He's also got his hood up, which I think is a subtle clue to the viewer that he belongs in the suspect category. The next thing we see is his wife going through his missing son's things and lingering over a skeleton-faced toy with its own hood up. And then we immediately cut back to the cave in the appearance of another hooded figure. And then we're back in the hotel room with our most prominent hooded figure yet, who has a whole conspiracy wall that just needs a touch of red string to make absolutely perfect. He clearly knows that there's something going on with time in this story, as evidenced by the question, when is Mikkel, that we will get from him later. In the meantime, though, he's got a weird kind of steampunky device that I don't know what to make of. Maybe it's a time travel device. Because what else could it be? Now, at Mad's presumably empty grave, Mikkel's father's mother swaps one action figure sat atop it for the hooded one she picked out earlier. It's obviously meaningful, but whether it's more meaningful than just the hood and death motifs going on remains to be seen. Mikkel's dad is in his car in a sad rainstorm, meanwhile, rejecting calls from his wife, Katerina. Their kids are similarly mismanaging their emotions and relationships. The boy is punching his walls like an absolute buffoon, which I think is pretty telling of the quality of the parenting happening in this household. Guys, you gotta make sure your sons have more emotional resources than that, okay? Hurting others and hurting themselves should never be their first impulse. And in the room where his father killed himself, we find Jonas. He's poking around, looking at all his dad's weird shits, and he finds a loose board in the ceiling. There's a paper hidden there that appears to be a map of the cave system, but it's quite chaotic and unclear. In the bunker, the hooded figure is experimenting upon Eric. It's unclear if this is a continuation of last episode's scene or if this is another separate instance of torture. Either way, it's pretty clear that Eric is going to end up in the same condition as the other body, and at this point in the show, my tinfoil was definitely that they were the same kid and that Eric had somehow timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly gotten aged down or something. I am less convinced of that now. From there, though, we go to the nuclear power plant. 
Ulrich, Mikkel's dad, is screaming at the nuclear guy as if that's going to do anything, and now we see how his eldest son ended up feeling like he needed to punch walls. This is not a family that encourages boys to handle themselves with emotional maturity. And then we're back to the hotel woman's son, who is rifling through Eric's bag of drugs. There's a burner phone in there, and it offers three attempts at a passcode before it, I don't know, locks itself or deletes itself or something? The boy tries one guess, which is wrong, and gives up for now. Then, our illicit lovers meet at the police station. That this woman cannot tell her affair is over boggles my mind. When a kid goes missing, gets abducted, or is murdered, it almost always breaks up the parent's marriage. And this lady thinks it's not going to put an end to her affair? Unbelievable. I hate to break it to you, but however shaky a marriage involving an affair is, the affair is almost always built on even shakier ground. So from here, Ulrich does some more investigating. We see the coin that's put around the victim's necks, and I wonder if there's any significance to it being on a red string. And the coin is from 1986, aka the year the nuclear guy came to town and the year that Mads disappeared. In any case, Ulrich instead ends up suspicious of Eric's dad, Jürgen, who works for the power plant, and he goes to poke around the poor dude's ramshackle home. All he ends up finding is drugs. In the woods, the hooded figure is dragging Eric's corpse in a tarp. His hair is distinctive, which is good because his face is not. His eyes are burned away, same as the other corpses. Elsewhere, Nuclear Boy is doing something? He's got employees loading something mysterious into a tractor trailer, and who the fuck knows what that is about? Elsewhere, elsewhere, Ulrich's mistress, Hannah, and her son, Jonas, are chatting about her late husband, Michael. It's clear that their relationship was already kind of rocky even when he was still alive. Jonas asks, I believe, if she loved him, and that's the moment when their house's power comes back on. And I wonder if that means something. So back at Ulrich's house, his wife, Katarina, makes him make her a promise. Whatever happens, he's going to tell her the truth about it. And I fear it may be important that he doesn't actually promise anything in the scene. And then, all around town, the power flickers. Mikkel's planet mobile is hella awesome, and I want it. We are also treated to a glimpse of a skeleton in his room, further associated him with skeletons even though we know he's not dead. A bunch of birds, though, are inexplicably dead. And now we're back to the mysterious man who found the first dead bird. When is Mikkel? He corrects the newspaper, and the show answers us immediately. Mikkel emerges from the cave into 1986, shortly after the disappearance of his uncle, and he meets his father, who is a jackass, and Katarina. I'm really worried about what's going to end up happening to this kid, and it could honestly be anything at this point. Maybe he turns out to be the key to whatever it is that the villains want. Maybe he grows up to be a villain. Who knows? A happy ending would be making it home, a la Will from Stranger Things, but I fear we may be heading towards something much sadder than that. And the episode ends with a concrete answer to the question. Mikkel is in 1986, and where the hell do we go from here? So the thing I'm loving the most about this show, so far at least, is that I have seen this show recommended a couple of times specifically in regards to what should I watch after finishing Stranger Things. And this show really does have a bit of a Stranger Things vibe. It's got a tiny bit of Stranger Things and a tiny bit of Broadchurch, which I find very interesting as a combination. And all in all, I am very satisfied with these first two episodes. This is not a straightforward horror story, which was kind of what I thought I was getting myself into. Instead, it's very much a science fiction story. So far, we have time travel, we have Cold War stuff, we have nuclear stuff. 
If it were set in America, I would say that the CIA is going to come into play somehow with all of their ridiculous Cold War experimentation, but it being set in Germany instead, I feel I'm missing some of the cultural context that would help me interpret the show, but what we are getting on screen so far is genuinely fun and impressive. It truly feels like this is going to be very well done. It feels like the showrunners here have a very specific, distinct story that they're trying to tell. A properly plotted mystery with actually worthwhile little clues sprinkled throughout. Well done foreshadowing, good solid parallels. Probably as we get to know our characters more, we'll start to see solid connections and relationships and even foils among them. And I'm really excited about this. This show looks very promising right from these first two episodes, and I'm really expecting to really enjoy it. I hope that at least the first season doesn't have like a dissatisfying ending if the show overall ends on a dissatisfying note. And I am getting hints from the tone of this beginning that we may have an ending just as dark as the title. If nothing else, though, I am really hoping to enjoy this. It really does seem like it can scratch that itch that Stranger Things isn't currently scratching for me while it's off the air, and I love a good mind-screw story anyway. My favorite types of stories are always the ones that demand their audience keep up and figure things out, stories that are told with purpose and intention, which this seems to be. So, those are my thoughts on the first two episodes of Dark Season 1. Right after I finish recording this, I'm going to be sitting down to watch the next two episodes. If you are at all interested in joining me for those reactions, you're going to want to head on over to my Patreon, where for $5 and up, patrons get access to my full-length reaction videos. And by the time you're hearing this podcast episode, there is a strong likelihood that I will be finished watching at least the first two seasons of this show, if not the entire thing, as I plan to watch and write my scripts and record the episodes at a pretty rapid pace. So with that said, if you are interested in what it is that I'm going to be watching after dark, I have a poll up on my Patreon available to $1 patrons that you can vote on to help me get a feel for what you'd most be interested in me watching and or covering in the future. And for those interested in what I have done in the past, I have reacted to a series of shows before I started Dark, and those shows include the first two seasons of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, the first two seasons of Umbrella Academy, the first season of Squid Game, the first season of You, the entirety of October Faction, Bly Manor, The Duchess, and Midnight Mass, plus a small selection of different movies, most of which are horror. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, a rating or a review on your podcatcher of choice would be very much appreciated. And beyond all of that, I sincerely hope you enjoyed my coverage of this show, which I hope I will continue to enjoy as well. I simply cannot wait at this point to watch more of it, so I'm going to go do that now, and I hope you will join me again for my next episode when I will be letting you know what I think of Dark Season 1, Episodes 3 and 4. And thank you so much for listening. Elsewhere, the mother of our suicide victim. Victim? What's a victim?